This gospel today is one that in seminary uh, your professors may actually say to you, you're going to lie because you're going to tell everybody it's okay to have my... This is just this guy. It's nobody else. But I think we need to understand what the gospel is really saying and what's going on here because in a way Jesus is not saying in one way that he should be come totally destitute or, or what have you. But we need to understand the context and, and what's going on here. And what this is really about. Because it's the idea about what are we willing to surrender to God? What are we willing to let him have access to in that real way? Now, by, the Bible does talk about wealth being a problem. Um, and <laughs> the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and this guy, let me just say this, he comes across, he's got everything together. He's, a, he's, got, he's moral, he's a good moral man, he even probably goes to synagogue, etc., etc. And then he's very wealthy, and for a lot of people, um, if you do good, you'll be blessed by God with prosperity and material good. You know, when something good happens to us, it's because we did something good, right? That song in The, the Sound of Music, I must have done something good, you know. Conversely, when something bad happens, it must be because we did something bad. And you see that in the story of Job where his, his quote-unquote friends are telling him, yeah, you must have done something really <laughs> bad for you to get uh, into this situation. And, and then we, we see wealthy people as celebrities. Oh, aren't, aren't they amazing? They're so smart. They're this, that, or the other thing. And they appear confident. And when you look at the rich young ruler, and I know this knowing churches, this is the kind of guy a pastor would love to have in his church. This is the kind of guy we would love, quote-unquote. You know, he's wealthy. He's got his life apparently together. He knows what he's doing. And he even admits he has something that he lacks. <laughs> so, the resulting encounter, though, shows he's not just lacking something. In the reality, he's more outside of the kingdom of God than he thinks he is. And the disciples freak out, as we heard in the gospel after the encounter with, with Jesus. The disciples come to Jesus, and they're kind of freaking out. You know, if this moral and prosperous person is outside the kingdom of God, how can we get in? And of course, like a lot of the encounters with Jesus, and of course in the New Testament, are we going to come to God and relate to God on God's terms? Not on our terms, but on God's terms. This is not a democracy in terms of the relationship with God. It's kind of like, you know, I want to be a fish, so I want to be able to go underwater, and just because I decide I'm going to be a fish, and I want it. Well, it ain't going to happen. That's not reality. You can't sit there and, and will it into existence and all this kind of stuff. We have to, like if we go swimming, we have to approach the water on the water's terms. And the same thing with the Lord. The, the real gospel is really outside the way we think, especially in pop Christianity, which drives me crazy. You know, bubblegum. I mean, I was reading this thing about one of the major megachurches out west now having clowns and everything during the worship service. And they're trying to be seeker-sensitive, and they're going to try to not talk about as much directly Jesus <laughs> during the worship. And it's kind of like as we bring our lattes into the church and put them in the cup holder. But anyway... And in general, people, you know, we think, especially in our churches, and this is what we don't realize turns off a lot of the younger people, 
you know, we really think we're morally, spiritually, psychologically together. You know, we've got our careers. We even have the humility to seek out and ask Christ what we lack. And Jesus' response explodes the guy's whole <laughs> frame of, of reference. His whole worldview. And he goes away, and the Greek word actually is grieving. Some translations say sad, but it's grieving. Thought he had it made. Hey, man, I only lack one thing. What's the one thing you think I lack? Look, I do all this, so it's probably one thing, right? Wasn't sure what the one thing was, but he's pretty sure he was near the top of the ladder. He just had one more rung to find, and he'd be there. But he leaves grieving. So there's a couple of things I think that are really important. You know, basically, what happened? What happened? Well, number one, he encounters the real Jesus and the real message of the gospel, not the bubblegum Christianity that's out there now. And that goes for all of us. I mean, because a lot of us in the Orthodox Church, because it was in a different language, we were never told, right, the full scope of everything. It's just do this, because in the village they used to do that, and you don't need to understand, and just bring your kids to basketball, and that means that's enough, and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, you know, fast a couple days a week, take communion. But nobody said the why and the wherefore and what this was really framed in when I was growing up. We learned Christ demands more than we thought, but we learned that he offers us more than we could ever think of. And this is an amazing kind of thing when you realize this. He offers us more than we could even begin to think of. Our response can be either to bow down and wonder and worship him or go away offended. And boy, you learn that when you're a priest. I remember when I was giving a sermon real fast on um, uh, the widow's son who died and how Jesus stopped the funeral procession and resurrected him. And I talked about the fact of, are we spiritually dead? You know, there's makeup. Hey, we're dressed up nice. But inside, we're dead. Spiritually, we're dead. And we have to be careful of that. And I actually had a couple of people coming up to me in, in the bread line afterwards. Bread line, right? But, you know, are you talking about me? <laughs> this type of thing. And I was like, the shoe fits, which we don't want to hear. See, we're the kind of people that we want a, a doctor to not tell us the truth. Does anybody really not want the doctor to tell them the truth after you've gone through an exam? Of course not. But, but. The other thing that happens is, as a result, we can't be indifferent about God. And this, I have to tell you, the more I'm reading about why people leave Christianity, the church, and everything else, is because it begins with indifference. It's not outright rebellion. It's not outright, you know, I hate God. There is no God. It's all, blah, blah, blah. it's not some violent reaction. What it begins with, faith seems to get attacked when we become indifferent. And look at the culture we're in. I mean, it's, it's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a cancer. Christianity is laughable, irrelevant, boring, sticky sweetness, occasionally connecting to it, a religion <laughs> that seems to be anxiety-ridden and producing guilt. And that's what our kids see. Always being negative, you know, etc. So that's number one, though. When we encounter the real Jesus, it shakes a lot of that up. And the real gospel, the fuller picture, not the 
what's the minimum I can do? You know, like my joke about what do I, if I say to my wife, what's the minimum we can do here and be married and not expect a negative reaction? But we do that with God? So what's the real message, the real Jesus? Okay. Number two, he has two of his assumptions about religion totally destroyed by Jesus. He lacks something. He comes speaking a spir- seeking a spiritual experience, something that would round out his life, something in addition to his life, you know, something extra, this kind of thing, right? Like, now I'll learn how to play golf, or now I'll... I'll uh, get into the hobby of collecting cars or something, just to round out my life. Well, that's the number one issue. That's one of the assumptions that gets blown out of the water. This isn't about rounding out your life or just in addition to something else. You know, Scripture talks about being born from above, being born again. And what really hits me as I listen to this, and we know this in, in the theology of the church, that the opposite of Death is not life, but the opposite of death is birth. Something has to die before something is born. You know, the alcoholic learns that for whatever reason they are obsessed with drinking, and there could be a lot of emotional psychological history, of course, and totally understandable, but if they just have to begin by stopping drinking, they have to stop. They have to let the desire begin to be in control and and in a sense, not let it have a life of its own taking over the person's life. And if anything, in orthodoxy, we understand this is about rebirth, but a whole lifetime of rebirth, transfiguration, everything. It's not about, oh, in addition to it. And we've talked about this before. The fact, when we, when we read the scriptures, you know, what, what, you know, people talk about, oh, I, I have Jesus in my life. Okay, that's nice. But do we have ourselves in Jesus' life? Again, you know, we're v- American Christianity is very much, what can Jesus do for me? Like we got on eBay or Amazon. Instead of, how do I fit into Jesus' life? I tell people this when they talk about church, you know, because I'll describe some, sometimes how the early church, the general structure of worship and things like that, and I'll get a comment from somebody that says, well... Would Jesus be comfortable in my church? I said, the question actually should be, would you be comfortable in his? Would you be comfortable in his? See, because church is not about me or us or what I like. It's about the Jesus that the prophets proclaimed, the apostles preached, and known in the breaking of the bread. The gospel is revolution. It's about an entire rebooting rather than patching up of life. Look at the story of Noah. You know, God sees the mess that humanity's gotten into. He reboots. <laughs> he rebirths everything. And really, if we looked at the story, I'm not going to, it is parallels the earlier passages in Genesis, what happens as a result. It's a rebirth from the ground up. Um, having worked with couples in my, in my life where there's sometimes been infidelity. You know, when that happens, there's something, something cancerous in the relationship. And the, the thing, if, you, if they, they want to get help, 
they're going to have to deal with the fact that it's literally not just patching a hole in the wall in their house. It's literally letting the whole house go down and we have to, from the foundation, rebuild back up. And that's what Christianity is about. It's about us being rebirthed, reformed. And not just in addition to life. And if you don't think that's revolutionary, think of the statement of Jesus. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Did you know it? Yeah, well. And then we know this when he says, I fulfilled all the commandments. Well, the first commandment, if anybody remembers, is what? Anybody remember what the first commandment is? Yeah, but there's one other part before that. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And part of it is we don't understand how much we are loved by God to begin with. And it doesn't, you know, God doesn't love us because we're perfect, functionally perfect. Please understand that, okay? There is this idea of God as a parent, as a parent, you know, who, even if his kids go wacko, he still loves them. He's going to be there for them. You know? I, I remember meeting a woman who had literally five sons, and when they got out of college, they were just partying down, go crazy, and so on and so forth. But she prayed for them. And before she died, three of them came back to the Lord and, and really sobered up in their lives in a great way. One even went into full-time ministry. And the other two, I remember talking to her because there were two left still that were not quite there with the Lord and, and, and their life. But she said, and she wasn't orthodox, but she knew. She said, I'm going to keep praying for them even after I'm gone because she was terminally ill. Christ came not because of what we've done or not done, but because of the incarnation because he simply loves us and he takes on our human reality into himself. His death, resurrection, and ascension cuts through this line, this weird line that we like We have this weird horizontal line Here's the good people, here's the bad people. Here's what's holy, this is what's unholy. This is what's religious, this is what's irreligious. And we see that line running horizontally. But the the weird thing, and I heard this from a preacher, so I I admit I copped it, but I think it's very good. He says the line is not horizontal, it's vertical. It cuts through the, the good guy and the bad guy. It goes right up the middle. It goes right up the middle. God doesn't think and judge the way we judge and think. So there's that. Number three, Jesus got personal. <laughs> the rich young ruler thinks this is an academic question. If I just tweak this part of my life or, or learn something about, you know, I'm missing something. You know, living in one's head deflects dealing with real personal issues. You know, and we get worried about, and, and I, you see this. People, you try to talk to them about real issues and they go off philosophical why do bad things happen to good people? You know, why would a good God allow evil? Miracles, they don't happen. You know, the church is too exclusive, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we learn, we learn that the difficulty we think we have initially is not really the difficulty in our lives. And one of the things that changes this is, I'm going to jump here to Mark's version of the story where he talks about as the young man's talking, Jesus, quote, looks at him with love. Jesus can cut into and see and read the person's heart. 
The real issue and the real difficulties are power struggle of our ego with God over all we'd like to possess and control, how we think life ought to go. And I've, I've said this before, that one of the interpretations of the, the eye of the needle uh, and the camel is that the Greek word, and this is in many manuscripts, is not literally the animal, the camel. And by the way, there was never a gate called the, the eye of the needle. I love how some preachers make stuff up as they go along, you know. But we don't need to know the historical reality. We'll just say, the Holy Spirit told me there was a, a gate called the eye of a needle. God bless you. Anyway, but the word for camel in some of the manuscripts is actually camelus, which is, which is a thick hemp rope. Now imagine trying to, you know, and you've seen some of these big heavy ropes. I remember, you know, being in the Middle East and so forth. And imagine trying to take a needle and trying to thread that rope through there. And you, you, we all know this, that a, that a rope is made up of many threads. And in order to thread that, you'd have to unravel, whoa, get down to the bottom of the rope. You have to pull the strands apart and get down to the one, the one strand that can get through the eye of the needle. In other words, we have to, this is what I mean, we have to, God wants to help us let go of things so he can rebuild us from the ground up again. And that's what born again means. Born again is it's us, oh, I had a good feeling. Thank you, Jesus. I cried when I prayed. That's great. But it's a whole lifetime. We're not done being born again until we step into the next dimension at the, at the appearance of Christ. But he wants to do it with us. He's not just sitting back watching us. And I think this is the powerful thing. This rebirth is happening because God took our human flesh into himself, our human nature. His blood runs through our veins. And he's pumping his life's blood into us to burn those cancers and those things that deflect or keep us from seeing that reality. And we have to learn to surrender ourselves, our views. We have to surrender our dreams. The way Abraham had to learn to sur surrender Isaac. Power and joy without God becomes a monster that will drive, control, possess us. And in the rich man's case, it's driven and defined by money or the craving for it, being envious and bitter towards those who have it when we don't. We're so afraid of losing control, we may even do evil things to attain our goal of control. You want an example? Jerry Springer. Makes money off of watching people just beat the crap out of themselves. That's entertainment. Was it one of those talk shows, actually, uh, somebody got shot after the show was over? But it shows to the extent when we let ourselves go and we, these things control us. So we learn about surrendering to Christ, willing to part with, walk away from anything or anyone that comes in the place of Christ. We let the psycho-spiritual umbilical cord that connects us to the fantasies of power and control be burned in the flaming rebirth of the Spirit of God. And the last point I want to point out is simply this. The treasure in heaven. When we let go and surrender everything to God, let him rebirth and reboot our lives, we learn that Christ is the, tr the treasure in heaven. Come to earth. Money, etc., doesn't even begin to compare to what Christ gives us. I mean, we are brought into the community of the Trinity. 
It's not that we're just going to go float off to some nice place and play a harp on a cloud or something crazy like that. Even if we get direct TV up there or whatever. It, it's this union. That's this union with God. Organic union. And into the very life of the Father through His Son and the Holy Spirit. Because it's our DNA that the Son of God takes on and walks with and, and heals all through his life, embracing every part of our life, including death, and crushing it in his embrace, and showing what comes out of the tomb is not only humanity rebirthed, transfigured, but humanity as fully now part by grace of the life of the Trinitarian God. And that's what we taste of in every Eucharist. What compares to that? We're treasured by him. We're treasured by him. And that's something a lot of us, depending on what difficulties we grew up with, it's hard to, to we may know academically. You know, in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, the priest used to go before God and wear the ephod and he had these stones. And on the stones were engraved the names of every one of the children of Israel, engraved them over his heart. And we understand that Christ is our high priest. And in the church, we do the same thing. I, when I prepare the bread and wine, I'm naming everybody. Everyone. To have them offered through Christ to the embrace of God by the Holy Spirit. See, the church is here to mirror this reality. Not just talk about it. Not just have wonderful, gooey feelings about it. But to literally let it be enfleshed. And that's the bottom line, to, to learn that we're loved like that. And not only loved, but like the priest going into the Holy of Holies. And, and now, like it says in Hebrews, we go through the flesh of Christ into the Holy of Holies. And that reality that even when we feel like he's not there, he's there. And I just want to close with this from Isaiah. Where Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. And then God responds. Can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. But I will not forget you. Behold. I think of the crucified Jesus. I have you inscribed on the palms of my hands. 